You're listening to audio from Crossroads Community Church, located in Fogelsville, Pennsylvania. If you want to learn more about C3 and what it is about, you can visit us at c3lehigh.com. And now, for today's sermon. Hey, today we're concluding our series titled, Fight for Your Family. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about fighting for your kids, not with your kids, for your kids. Last week, we talked about fighting for your marriage, and today we're doing kind of an all-encompassing topic of fight for your family as a whole. We're going to be going over principles that apply to moms, dads, children, and I believe if you're here this morning, we've made it a habit over the past couple of weeks, whenever we, um, to explain this, whenever we do a, a sermon series on family, I want to recognize that there may be those in the room who are in a season of singleness, and you say, how does this sermon apply to me? Well, it applies in two ways. One, we believe that seasons of singleness don't last forever, and number two, you probably have people in your sphere of influence who are families, have kids, uh, maybe in your workplace, there's kids who come into the business that you work at, whatever it may be. And the point is, is you are in an environment to bless and impact families with biblical information. Can I hear an amen this morning? That's how this sermon applies to you is these principles are not just exclusive for the family unit, but can be applied to all believers. And more so than that, if you are in an atmosphere where there's families that you're engaging in, I I mean, I I don't think it takes too long to discover this reality that the family unit as a whole is under attack. Can Can we be real this morning? The family unit is in a fight right now. And you probably know families where you recognize that they're battling, man. There's a fight going on. What better way to heal that situation than bring the word of God, the only thing that can heal that situation? Amen, church? Amen. Years ago, uh, before becoming the lead pastor here at C3, I was a youth pastor for about six years, Um, three years in Doylestown, PA, just outside of Philadelphia, and then three years at a place called Monroeville, just outside of Pittsburgh. It's always just kind of funny how God took us literally to two opposite places. And so we spent three years, roughly three years there doing youth ministry. The one youth ministry, it grew to be about 20 to 30. And at the other youth ministry, it grew to be about 100 to 120. And I remember that we found this statistic that I'm going to be going over in those six years at both locations to be true. And it's a very harsh statistic that I'm going to be discussing with you this morning, but I promise there's a point to be made in all of this. The statistic is this, is that those who graduate age 18 to 29 years old, 75% of them will walk away from Christ. 75% of those who come from a Christian background, when they graduate, upon graduation, ages 18 to 29, they will walk away from their relationship with Jesus. So the question for the church, the question for us that then becomes this, what do we fight? How do we fight this statistic? Are there practices and principles that we could implement because 75% walked away, but this morning I want to go over with you what kept the 25% because there's biblical principles that Everybody within this 25 percentile had in common. A Christian organization did a a study on this statistic and found that there were five core biblical principles that stood out that everybody in the 25 percentile had in common. And the reason why I want to go over this this morning is not only for the family's sake, but these biblical principles are also things that we can implement individually that will keep us rooted in our relationship with Christ. Is this making sense so far this morning, church? 
And so you look at this 25%, and one of the things that I find extremely encouraging before we go over five common practices within this 25 percentile, what I find very encouraging about this is these five things, anyone can do them. Anyone can implement them. All you have to do is be obedient. You don't need God-given talent or skill. You just need to be obedient to doing what his biblical principles tell us to do. I don't know if you've ever met someone who's naturally talented, but it's disgusting. (laughs) Have you ever met someone that like out of the womb, they can make a beautiful piece of art? Like me, whenever I draw, if somebody comes into my office, they'll be like, oh, your five-year-old daughter made that drawing. But then there's people who have this artistic gift. Have you ever met somebody who, they just seem to be natural when it comes to sports. Like they pick up a ball of any kind, they put up a hockey stick, pick up a hockey stick of any kind, whatever it may be, and they're just naturally talented. And sometimes we look at those things, we're like, I can't do that because, you know, I don't have those natural gifts, those natural talents. What's so incredible about these five things is you don't need any of those natural gifts and talents and so on and so forth. All you need are two things, a heart of obedience and secondly, seeking and asking the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, anybody can implement these five common practices among the 25%. So let's go through them this morning before we break them down. Number one, within this 25 percentile, there was this practice. Number one, they ate together five out of seven nights of the week as a family unit. Number two, ages 18 through 29, during their teen years, during their childhood years, their formative years, They served with their families in a ministry. Number three, they had one spiritual experience in the home during the week. Let me me clarify that for a moment. It means that they encountered God at home. Amen? Number four, they were entrusted with responsibility in ministry at a young age. So not only were they participating in a ministry, but they had responsibilities that were being delegated to them. And number five, they had at least one faith-focused adult in their lives other than their parents. I believe that there's something to each one of these biblical principles and biblical practices, again, that don't just apply to the age group before 18 years old, but these are formative practices in our lives as believers in Christ. Can I hear an amen this morning? So let's go through our time together. Let's go through these five common practices that kept the 25% rooted in Christ. And what I hope to discuss with you this morning is one, their biblical precedence, and number two, how we can live these out, how we can put these into action. So number one, eat together. How many of you like food? How many of you are thinking about it right now? Now, I'm not going to like torture you and say things that give you cravings like Chinese food or pizza or brisket. Hallelujah, I receive it. I receive it. Throughout my life, I've had the opportunity to go on various missions trips, whether it was Colombia or Mexico or my favorite, Ireland, and you probably can't imagine why that was my favorite since I'm obviously like full-blood Italian. 
But going to Ireland was incredible, and the relationships that were formed on these missions trips are absolutely, you cannot compare. There is nothing that can match the relationships that you form on a missions trip. And the only way I know how to explain it is it's kind of like this. Our veterans understand relationships that I'm talking about. It's the kind of relationships that you do battle with, that you're there for during the, the good times and the not-so-good times. You guys kind of bonded because you suffered uh, uh, together, and so it is kind of on missions trips in a way it's like suffering for Christ and what I mean by that is mission trips are not convenient I'm not going to stand here and say they cost money they absolutely do they cost time and resources but can I tell you what's incredible about this is you set out on a mission trip to be a blessing and you come back more blessed just the way that God works but on these missions trips these relationships were formed number one from serving alongside of one another absolutely but number two, I formed my deep, meaningful relationships around the table. At the end of the day, whenever we would come back from doing whatever ministry work we were, whether you were doing a kids, or you were on a kids ministry outreach team, or maybe there was a construction team, or maybe there was a Bible school team, everybody would come back together in the evenings, and we met around the table. And I can't help but notice this pattern of Jesus' ministry. He formed deep, meaningful relationships around the table. What's incredible is the Bible actually leads us to believe that gathering around the table as a family or as friends and sharing a meal together is a spiritual practice. We learn in the Word of God that sharing a meal together is one of the primary ways that relationships are established, deepened, and enjoyed by both God and others. Have you ever read Exodus chapter 24, where the Israelites and the elders, where they have a meal with God? It happened. Then Moses and Aaron and Adab and Abihu and 70, if you're looking for a childhood name, by the way, Abihu should be on the top of your list biblical what more do you want and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel here it is they beheld God ate and drank that's a pretty cold dinner appointment I would be walking all around and be like oh I gotta go soon I have dinner plans Go ahead and ask me who I'm meeting with. You won't believe it. The Old Testament prophets often compared life in the new heavens and eternity with a picture of a divine banquet table. In the New Testament, we regularly see and find Jesus reclining at a table during his early um, uh, ministry, earthly ministry, engaging with real people, furthering his kingdom work, fostering true community, demonstrating reconciliation with God, and building genuine fellowship among his disciples. All of this happened around a table. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 21, verse 15, this is one of my favorite chapters in John because it's when Peter is reconciled. It's when Peter is challenged, restored, and called into ministry. And I love this because Peter, he's with Jesus. And you have to understand that Peter's background is that he denied Jesus three times. And Jesus, here on this beach setting, he tells him, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And he goes through this exactly three times. Each time, it's as if he's restoring him from everything 
every time he denied Jesus. And I don't know about you, but this scripture gives me hope because it means no matter what background you come from, no matter what failures are attached to you, God still has a plan and he's still in the business of restoring. And he restores Peter with the incredible task of building the New Testament church and this, this call on Peter's life takes place around a breakfast setting. Because when you read scripture, they just got done eating. In Mark chapter 2, verse 16, it's pointed out that Jesus was known for sharing meals with sinners. Thank God. Come on, somebody. And what what was so offensive to the Pharisees, the keepers of the law, is they saw this and they understood something, that when you invite someone to your table, it's not a superficial relationship, but you are taking the time to get involved and plug into their life, that you are welcoming them on a higher level. That's why the Pharisees were so offended, because they knew that this setting was intimate. The dinner table. And of course, there's the instance of communion at the Last Supper in Luke chapter 22 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a sacred moment where Jesus communicates to his disciples his sacrifice, and he uses the elements on the table as an illustration, and this moment in time forever changes history. And as a result of the Last Supper, still today, he calls us to gather around his table where we enjoy fellowship with one another and reflect on his sacrifice. It took place around the table. After Jesus returns to heaven and the Holy Spirit is poured out, the early church gathered regularly in the homes to quote unquote break bread together. They loved carbs and so do I. And they did this as a practical expression of fellowship. Friend, don't ever underestimate the power of simply having dinner together. And finally, our eternal, joyous, soul-satisfying communion with God and our brothers and sisters in Christ is depicted in eternity with the great marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 9. Eating together is important. Eating together is important, church. That would have been a good place to say amen. The point is this. Make eating together a priority in your home. Make this a priority that five out of seven nights during the week, there's no coincidence here between this statistic and its biblical roots. Are you catching that? It's no, there's no coincidence here that there's 25% that remained in Christ after graduation and they all share this trait together that they broke bread with their families, that they had a connection with mom and dad around the dinner table. This is no coincidence and we've fallen into this poor lower mindset of saying, pastor, that's old school. Well, can I tell you that the old school ways seem to work? Because so many of them have roots in scripture and if you're here today and you say pastor again I'm, I'm in a season of of singleness how does this relate to me the point is this who are you inviting to your dinner table who are you connecting with who are you welcoming in and building those deep meaningful connections with 
The second practice that caused the 25% to remain committed to Christ is that they serve together as a family. Number two, they serve together as a family. It's no secret today that we live in a consumer-driven culture. I'm not going to hang out on this point too much because I've preached on it so many times before. But we have this mentality in our culture that is undeniable that it is all about me. It is about what makes you happy. Whatever your definition of happy is, it should be lived out. These are the messages that we received constantly, is it not? And unfortunately, this whole I'm here to be served mentality has spread into the modern church where churches have shifted from being the hands and feet of Jesus to being entertainment industries. And the problem with this mentality that says, serve me, I'm here to be served and to take from, I want this, whatever it may be, this, the problem with this mentality is that it will rob you from experiencing Jesus. It will rob you from becoming more like him. It will rob you of the joy of feeling contentment with him. It will rob you of the fruits of the spirit. It will rob you from living out your life's purpose. Well, pastor, how can you make such a statement? Because you and I were created to serve, not be served. Jesus said it so plainly. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but came to serve. And so it is with our purpose. You and I, I promise inherently, you and I will find satisfaction in serving others. Have you ever done something kind? No. <laughs> we'll pray for you. What is kindness? If you've ever done an act of kindness, if you've ever helped somebody in need, then there's something inside your soul that wells up that just feels good. It's the only way that we can justify having channels like Hallmark. <laughs> Without this explanation, it just doesn't make sense. It's the same storyline over and over and over and over. I can see the introduction and tell you how it ends. <sighs> Why, what would ever possess someone to watch the Hallmark Channel? Naps. Because <laughs> there's something that feels good in us when we see a situation that works out. We see somebody in need who, ha who has a need and that need is met. I is this making sense this morning? Why is that? Because God created that in us. And what's really interesting is this whole principle of serving as a family, again, is, of course, rooted in biblical truth. In First Chronicles, throughout this, this biblical book, there's a pattern of the entire family unit given responsibilities, and they serve as a family together. First Chronicles, uh, families are serving by, uh, one, performing ceremonies in chapter 23, verse 28. They make food together. They're worshiping through music. They're managing and protecting the facilities. Hallelujah. There is, that means that there is a family in here that they are the church security team. That's just kind of awesome. Just saying. 
First Chronicles, there's families that are managing the finances and overseeing the wealth and the fruit of all that God is doing. And in chapter 26, verse 22, later in the New Testament, we see this pattern continue where the family unit is serving God. We see it with Jesus himself in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 42. It says, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. This was the norm. When a child reached the age of 12, hey, come along. We're going to go honor God together as a family. Serving the Lord as a family together is so vitally important, church. Your kids, your young people are told that life is all about them, and there is something that happens when a young person encounters the reality that this world is bigger than me. There's something that happens when I've seen young students, oh my word, when they get a hold of missions work, they have more going for them in ministry than some full-time evangelists do. I've met various families where I, I love their traditions. Various families that I've met, they make it a point that every year they as a family are going to invest in some sort of serving project. So it could be around Thanksgiving, going and helping the less fortunate, making sure that they get a meal, and they do it as a family. Could be homeless ministry. It could be in a few weeks we're going to have something taking place here called Operation Christmas Child, where we have the opportunity to fill up boxes with Christmas gifts for kids, underprivileged kids. And I want to challenge you, do this as a family. I've met some families that they go on overseas missions trips together and they make it a point that before their students graduate, they will get them, making it a point to get them on a missions trip to a third world country. Why is that? Because it gives you a lifelong impact in the way that you view the world around you. I've been a part of mission trips where there have been students who've come on and they just kind of had like this, you know, I'm really not here because I want to be here mentality. And by the end of the trip, these students' hearts are so softened for the things of God. Why? Because I'm telling you from personal experience, you cannot walk into somebody's mud hut where they have nothing to offer and yet they look at you and offer you a meal. You cannot experience that and remain the same. I don't think it's possible. When you walk into a place where people have nothing, and yet they offer you the last little bit of food that they have, because you're brothers and sisters in Christ, and when you experience the fact that there is a language barrier, but a relationship with Jesus goes beyond that. And when you experience what that's like, it forever changes your worldview. You cannot remain the same. And it only makes sense because you and I were created to serve and not just consume. Amen? Until you as a family figure out, or you as an individual figure out what ministry you would like to serve in as a family unit or missions project you want to reach, whatever the case may be, the first steps to this I want to challenge you is, number one, identify talents and interests, and then serve with them as a family. 
meet together as a family and identify giftings and talents and base your service projects off of that. And again, I just want to reiterate this. In a few weeks, we're going to have Operation Christmas Child. And I want to challenge you parents, when you go out, for those of you who aren't familiar with how this works, typically you go out with a shopping list, you buy them different toys and different things, and you put them in a box and send them to an underprivileged uh, student out of a main hub, and that will be our church. And I want to challenge you and encourage you parents that one, do this with your kids, play a part in this service project with them, and two, allow them to pick out the items. Let them be a part of this. Let them have what what uh, saying, it's called skin in the game. Get them involved so that someday whenever they see the pictures of kids opening up gifts that they wouldn't have had unless you were the hands and feet of Jesus in that moment, they can draw that conclusion themselves and see what a blessing it is to bless others. Serve as a family together. And if you're here this morning and again you're single, my question to you is, where are you serving? That's really a question for the body of Christ as a whole, isn't it? Where are you serving? Where are you being the hands and feet of Jesus? Number three, and let me hit the pause button real quick. I just want to give a special shout out to those who are in our parking lot ministry for doing an incredible job. Can we give it up for them? A few weeks ago, there, there was some heavy rain coming in the morning, and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, man, we should really get the, the parking lot team some umbrellas. And I looked out the window, and I don't know who they stole them from, but they all had umbrellas and were walking people to the door. Man, I cannot tell you, par parking lot team, just so you know, like I cannot tell you how many people walked in this church, and they were deeply touched by that act of kindness. So can we give it up for them one more time? The point is, is thank you for serving. The third practice that caused the 25% to remain committed to Christ is that they had one spiritual experience in the home during the week. Now, please understand, it does not say that one spiritual experience a week was offered to them. It means that out of all of the spiritual experiences and opportunities that they had to encounter God, there was at least one that was met. One spiritual experience is another way of saying that they encountered God at home. This can be done through a variety of ways, whether it's praying together, reading God's word together, doing a Bible study as a family, worship and seeking the Holy Spirit together, teaching your children to lead out in prayer, teaching your children to pray over one another. Can I challenge you, especially if you have younger kids at home, teach your children how to pray over each other. And just a fair warning, like sometimes it's not going to be all picture perfect and sweet. I just want to warn you of that. My favorite was recently I asked my, my eldest daughter to pray over my youngest daughter and they got together and my eldest daughter Cadence put her hand on her little sister and said, and Lord, help me to stay away from my toys. <laughs> Not the direction we wanted to go in, sweetheart. Get your kids in the habit of praying over one another because I promise you that it might start out as just doing it in obedience, but there's fruit to obedience. And eventually, they're going to pray 
And the Holy Spirit's going to meet them in that moment. These adults remain in their faith. The 25% remain in their faith because they learn to live for God at home. Their relationship with Jesus existed outside of the church. And I just want to say this as well. I am blown away by the amount of young families at our church. It is incredible. Can I brag on God for a moment? I remember a couple years ago when Kylie and I first came to C3. It was our first Christmas Eve service. And I remember we were praying that, you know, we would pack out the church and I remember that the leadership team, we were all in a buzz wondering like how many are going to be here and the ministry team and the board members were all praying, you know, Lord, would you fill up this place? And I remember like we were ecstatic because the first Christmas Eve service, there was 150 that came on Christmas Eve and we were just blown away by God's faithfulness. And it is so incredible to see those numbers for a Christmas Eve service, your most highly attended event as a church out of the year. It is so incredible to see that attendance our norm on a Wednesday. The one Wednesday night I'm sitting here in the Bible study and people are coming in and kids are getting checked in and uh, our board member Gary, he's meeting with a new believers class out in the lobby and the church is starting to fill up and I'm like, okay, it's going to slow down any minute now. And people just kept coming in. And I look out into the parking lot, and I'm like, okay, it's going to stop any moment now. And the cars just kept coming in, and I'm like, okay, it'll slow down any minute now. And all I see on the road coming down Clawsville Road are turn signals blinking. And then we start parking people in the grass on a Wednesday night. And I remember, you know, Bob Troyer, he, he gets out of his car, and he's smiling and laughing, and he goes, Revival! On a Wednesday, I'm just so blown away. And can I tell you, like, especially teachers who are here today, you, I, I hope that you know what it's like as a parent to hear your two-year-old in the back seat of the car on the way home on a Wednesday night repeating all of the Bible stories that she learned that night. My youngest daughter, she's two years old, and she says, Dad, they threw Jophis in a hole. And then she starts looking at her sister real suspicious. <laughs> they threw Jophis in a hole. And then she looks and she says, God used him. And that's the fruit of serving. That's the fruit of saying it's not about me, it's all for him is you have two-year-olds that are reciting biblical stories in great detail. So I bring that up to say this, parents, capitalize on that. When you're in the car after a Wednesday night, when you're in the car after a Sunday morning and you have the kids in the back, number one, it's strategic because they have nowhere else to go. Talk to them. Scripture says, talk about these things, his commands along the road and doing life. And the, the list goes on and on. So it is for us. Talk about what your kids are learning. I promise you they're learning something. So if they say, I don't know, that's when you hit the eject button and they get out of the car. Um, <laughs> capitalize on this. Talk to your students. Continue to teach these Bible stories and reiterate them 
at home. Mark chapter 12, verse 30 through 31 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all of your strength. The second of these greatest commands is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The question is, is how are you teaching your kids to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, all of their body? How are you teaching your students to love their neighbors? Is your home a place of encountering truth? Is it a, a, a learning center for understanding God's word better? Is it a place where your children know that they have freedom to discuss the topics that are difficult? Is it a place where your children know that if they're struggling with elements of their faith or following Jesus, that they can come to you and learn from you and express these concerns? Is it a place of encountering God Almighty? For parents looking for sources saying, Pastor, this is all aligning with me, but how do I do it? I wish that I could preach that sermon today, but in the meantime, here's a resource. Christian counselor and psychologist Dr. James Dobson has an incredible resource called Spiritual Checklist Training. If you go to his website, the page will look a lot like this one. It's a spiritual checklist where you can go through these questions that will help you evaluate, is your home a place of encounter? Is your place a place where your students are learning to follow Jesus on their own and they're no longer trying to piggyback off of your relationship with Jesus? I want to challenge you. Dr. JamesDobson.org has incredible resources. This is one of them for parents. Again, it is titled The Spiritual Checklist, and it will go through spiritual checklist training, and it will go through six principles, six evaluation questions, and practices that you can put into place to guarantee that your home is a place where your kids are encountering God. Amen? Amen. Teach your kids how to pursue and encounter God at home. This is a principle for all of us. May we be the people who pursue God at home and not just on Sundays. Amen? The fourth practice that caused the 25% to remain committed to Jesus Christ after graduation and this principle that applies to us just as Christians is number four, entrusted with ministry responsibilities at a young age. They were entrusted with ministry responsibilities. So again, this isn't just showing up and serving. This is showing up and leading something. This is showing up and having responsibilities given into their hands and them running with it. There aren't, and I love this about following Jesus. Did you know that there aren't any age restrictions in the word of God? Come on, somebody. The prerequisites are always the same. The fruit in your life and the willingness to serve and be used. If you have a willingness and there's fruit growing out of that willingness, God therefore gives you responsibility no matter what your age is. Coming to know Jesus isn't bound by any age restriction. Following God's plan for one's life isn't bound by age restrictions. The Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit is not bound by age restrictions. The anointing on one's life is not bound by age restrictions. Therefore, serving and being used by God is not bound by age restrictions. Throughout the scripture, God uses young people from the Old Testament into the New Testament in mighty ways. Most scholars would come under the assumption that is obvious to us that David was hardly a teenager when he killed Goliath. We know this because Goliath was offended by his age. 
1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 41 through 45 says this. Meanwhile, the Philistine, that means Goliath, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. I love how scripture says he was good looking and it made Goliath sick. Not only are you young, but you're a good-looking guy, and I can't be embarrassed by you. David, am I a dog that you come here with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. That's a young man who knows his God. That's a young man who's walking in the anointing that God had on his life. David knew who he was because he knew who's, whose he was. Chapter 37 in Genesis verse 2 says, Joseph was just 17 when he was betrayed by his brothers. His story started at 17. In John chapter 6, we see the story, the famous story, the young boy that plays a part in the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000. All that young boy needed was a willingness to be used. In Acts chapter 21, verse 8 through 9, we see teenagers that have the gift of prophecy. God, may it come to pass here at C3. Acts chapter 21, verse 8 through 9 says this, leaving the next day, he reached Caesarea and he said, or excuse me, he said at the house of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. During this time in history, if you were unmarried, it was assumed that you were between the ages of 10 and 15 and they prophesied. It only makes sense, church, that at a young age, if you learn what it's like to step out in faith and be used by God, it shapes the rest of your life. Church, if your kids are expressing a desire to serve, don't undermine the Holy Spirit's leading in their life. Can I hear an amen this morning? As a youth pastor, it broke my heart to see students walk away from having responsibility in ministry because of one sarcastic comment from a parent. Did you know that the definition of sarcasm literally means to tear down? And all it took in that young person's life was one sarcastic comment that undermined it at taking initiative and having responsibility in ministry for them to get back in a box and pull away. Please don't ever make comments and say things such as, well, that's just not my student. They wouldn't be interested in something like that. Maybe God wants to mold and shape them. Maybe he wants to do something new in their lives. Well, that's not just their personality. They're shy. Maybe God wants to bring them out of that. Maybe God wants to equip them. Well, pastor, that's just the way our family jokes. Stop. <laughs> Find a new way. Amen. Find a way that speaks life and prophesies into their lives. Hallelujah. Don't ever undermine what the Holy Spirit, what the Lord wants to do in your student's life. 
There's too much evidence here in this book that tells us that they are more than able when God is on their side. Worship team, would you come? Empower your students, your kids to serve. If you're here this morning and again you say, I don't have any children, how does this relate to me? My question to you is, are you finding areas where you can take on responsibility and serve the Lord with them? Where you're leading something, where you're stepping out of your comfort zone. How are you being empowered to serve? The fifth and final practice that caused 25% of this statistic to continue to follow Jesus after high school. And the fifth principle that speaks to us and things that we as Christians just need in our lives is this. Mentorship outside of parents. Throughout the Word of God, we see principles of mentorship consistently. One might argue that the word mentorship is never mentioned once in Scripture, and you would be correct, but its principles are. For example, Jethro mentored Moses. Moses mentored Joshua and the elders of Israel, and Joshua mentored other remaining leaders of his army. Eli mentored Samuel, and Samuel mentored Saul and David, and Nathan the prophet also mentored David, and the list continues. Elijah mentored Elisha, and Elijah mentored King Joash and others. Daniel mentored Nebuchadnezzar, who humbled himself before God. Mordecai mentored Esther, another young person. Esther mentored King Xerxes, which led to the liberation of God's people. Priscilla and Aquila mentored Apollos, and this resulted in much improved ministry for Apollos. And finally, we have Jesus, the great mentor, who mentored 12 disciples, who established the Christian church. The apostles mentored hundreds, arguably thousands of other leaders, including Paul. Paul mentored Titus and Timothy and many others, and Timothy mentored faithful men. And the list continues and goes on and on and on. And the point this morning church is this if mature faithful servants of God found incredible fruit and mentorship it only makes sense that young people or us will find fruit in mentorship Proverbs chapter 27 verse 27 says as iron sharpens iron that's mentorship by the way so one person sharpens another the final point with you this morning church is this have a mentor and be a mentor have one be one so many get confused they think that they have a lot of mentors but what they really have is a lot of friends mentorship relationships are so far different than friendships As a pastor, I have an accountability partner, mentor that I often have a phone conversation with at least once a month, and they know this, and I say this out of love, I hate the phone call. Because when you have friends, they'll often tell you what you want to hear. When you have a mentor, they'll tell you what you need to hear. When you have friends, it's all about having a good time and, and just you know sharing in one another's company. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not condemning that, that. But the point is, as a mentor is more concerned about your development. 
and moving forward. Friendships, and this is where they grow similar, friendships we have to find ourselves, and so it is often with mentorship. Because nobody can force you to sit in the room with a mentor and go through the developing questions and so on and so forth. You have to decide here and now before you have these difficult questions asked you that hold you accountable that you will remain consistent. And I'm telling you, oh my goodness, you will experience so much fruit and growth in your life when you find someone who's further along than you to pour into your life and hold you accountable and ask the questions. Husbands, how are you treating your wives? How are you speaking to them? Wives, how are you treating your husbands? How are you speaking to them? How do you treat your friends? You know, your kids will discover a lot about relationships and how you talk about your boss. They'll discover a lot about how they feel about church, depending on how you talk about church. How do you talk about God's people? How do you talk about different ministry leaders? How do you talk about C3? Because if you're here today and you say, I'm struggling in some of those areas, we all will. You and I need mentors. I would not be here today had it not been for various mentors in my life throughout my developmental years. As a young person, I struggled severely, 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 severely with anxiety, panic attacks, and depression. It's a part of my testimony is that I haven't had a panic attack in over 15 years now. But I had mentors who would come alongside of me, and they, they weren't my parents. My parents still to this day offer an incredible amount of wisdom, but there's something about being a young person. And I know I, I'm not trying to offend teenagers here today. I'm just being real. We're like, when I was a teen, I, here's, here's what I heard when my parents would speak, kind of like from Charlie Brown. <laughs> Donnie, if you would just... Smile and nod. But there's just something about having a mentor in my life who would take me to play hockey at least once a week as a teenager. And we would go and play pickup games and he would ask me the difficult questions. And I felt like I could go to him because I knew that he would keep a secret. He would keep privacy. He would keep things confidential. And I trusted him with that. And you know, at the time, he was one of my, he was one of my dad's ushers at the time. And there was just something about my heart that was so touched that this gentleman, when I was, you know, 15, 16 years old, that this gentleman who was in his 40s and 50s would would spend time investing into my life. And he didn't just stick to the harsh things saying, this needs to change your life, this needs to change your life. He would also speak life into my life. He would say things like, Donnie, do you know that you have a calling on your life? Do you know that God has a plan for your life? 
Do you know that this anxiety and depression, it has an expiration date on it? Do you know that if you follow the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that you'll not only survive life, you'll thrive? He spoke these words into my life. And the list goes on and on and on of mentors that poured into my life, and I wouldn't be here today had it not been for them. So my question, who's mentoring you? Who's sending you the text message, hey, I didn't see you in church today? Who are you inviting to your table or whose table are you going to to maybe establish not just deep, meaningful friendship, but also deep, meaningful mentorship? And again, I I just want to hammer away at this point as we head to a close. So often Christians love chomping at the bit. They're just so anxious to say, I have a mentor and it looks like this awesome accomplishment. Can I tell you, it's going to be painful and you're doing yourself a disservice if you start to experience challenging questions and you pull back and say, I don't like that. I want it to be encouraged. We've got to get to the deep stuff, church. We've got to get to those areas in our lives where David said, Lord, search my heart. And a mentor will be a part of that process and saying, hey, there's something in your heart that you've got to be paying attention to. And you would be a fool to deny them. You would be a fool to write it off and say, that's not a part of me. The growth that you're missing. Who's mentoring you? And who are you in return mentoring and bringing up? There's an entire generation that needs godly biblical mentors. And on that point, I'm so thankful for people like Dennis and Michelle who step out of their nine to fives, who step out of their work days. And I know Dennis right now is establishing various businesses. And while he's dealing with all of the chaos that that entails, he still is loving teenagers and teaching them that there's someone who loves them in addition to himself and his wife. And that's God Almighty. I'm so thankful for mentors like Dennis and Michelle Hedicious. Who are you mentoring? Who are you bringing along? And who's pouring into your life? You can't do this thing that we call living for Christ by yourself. You are created to be a part of a community. And more so than that, within that community, have mentors. Would you stand with me this morning, church? And here's what I want to ask. I'm going to ask every head be bowed, every eye closed. And here's what we're going to do for a brief moment. I often find myself doing a majority of the praying on a Sunday morning, and I just feel inclined and convicted to switch this up a little bit. And what I'm going to ask for, church, is us as a church to pray out loud in a moment. I'm going to give us a count, one, two, three. And for 30 seconds, I want us to pray over the 75% that walked away. I want us to pray over the 75% that are currently walking away. 
I want us to pray over those parents. And maybe I'm sorry if this is touching a little bit close to home with some individuals are here today where you say, Pastor, my son, my daughter, maybe a relative, a friend, they're, they're a part of that 75%. And what I want us to do is for 30 seconds, would you just pray circles around the prodigal children? Pray that they come home. Pray that there's divine intervention. Pray that there's influence wherever they may be, whether it's college or the workplace. Or maybe you say, they're not my sons or my daughters, but they're my friends, my relatives, coworkers, whatever it may be. In just a moment, I'm going to one, two, three us. And church, please, if there's ever been a time to grow in boldness, it's now, here in 2022. If there's ever been a time for the church to get a little bit loud, it's now. And if you and I can't get out of our comfort zone in church, oh my word, we're certainly not going to get out of it in the world. So in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to be bold and pray out loud 30 seconds around that 75% statistic. Would you do that with me? One, two, three. Come on, church, let's pray. Come on, grow a little bit bolder. Some of y'all are whispering. We're not a whispering church. We're a shouting church. Come on, 20 more seconds. The prodigal sons and daughters, those who have fallen away from Christ, who are in places of hopelessness. Jesus. 15 more seconds. Jesus. 10 more seconds. And here's what I'm going to ask we do next. And again, if there's some here today and, and this just touches too soft of a spot in your heart and you decline, that's perfectly fine. But here's what I want to ask before we close. If you're here today and there's a loved one in your life, whether you're a parent of them or not, is, is, is somewhat irrelevant. If there's someone in your life that you say, man, that th this is a family member, a relative of mine that has walked away from Christ we want to pray with you. Would you lift your hand up so that we can gather around as a church? And I'm going to ask other church members, this is your opportunity to step out of a comfort zone just like we talked about. If you and I can't step out of our comfort zones in church, then we shouldn't expect to step out of our comfort zones outside of here. If you're worried about looking stupid in this house, I'm telling you, you're at the wrong place because we aren't like that. So I'm going to ask, lift those hands up high in boldness. Don't be shy. Don't do the half, you know, down here. And I'm going to ask church members, other church members, would you surround these? Come on, would you surround these who have their hands up high. No one left behind. No one left alone. Would you just begin to lay hands? And I want to encourage you. Would you just begin to pray? I'll lead out in prayer in just a moment. But even before I pray, would you just begin to speak out those prayers and lead over them? You just keep praying. I'll join in and close this out in just a moment. Come on. God's taking a sledgehammer to different people's lives right now.
just a little longer and I'll close this out. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray over every hand that is raised in this place today, we represent that there are lives and eternities in those hands. So Lord, we ask for divine intervention right here, right now, on, on behalf of whoever is represented within those hands. We ask that you would bring influence, godly influence, into their lives, that there would be people who speak prophetically into their lives, that the that, that only way to ex explain you know, what kind of topics they bring up or messages or whatever it may be is that God sent them. We ask for divine interruptions, Lord Jesus, because we recognize that sometimes interruptions are actually appointments. And so, Lord, we ask for divine interruptions on behalf of these who are represented in our hands, Lord. And I pray for those who raise their hands. Would you give them wisdom and guidance and Holy Spirit influence into the lives of those who are represented in that 75% side of the statistic, Lord. I pray that there would be reconciliation that comes out of this. If that's what's needed, if there's relationships that are broken right now, Lord, would you bring about restoration and healing, Lord? Father, we just place these individuals into your lives saying, Lord, we've reached the place where we can't do it on our own. We can't do what you do. You are Lord of the harvest. So would you do the work, Lord? Would your Holy Spirit intervene? Give us the wisdom. Give us the heart of the prodigal son's father that longs to see this child this person that's represented in these hands return to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Before we close, is it okay if I pray over y'all one more time? You can't have too much prayer, right? I know that we're at like 10 after and I somewhat apologize for that. All right, would you bow your heads once more with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for protection over the body of Christ today as we leave this place. Lord, once again, would you help us to walk in Holy Spirit empowerment, that there would be that realization that we've never been called to do this alone. We've never been called to bear these weights, these burdens on our own, but you've always been there with open arms. So help us to give over the burdens that have been weighing us down, the worries, the anxieties, and place them into your hands. And Lord, I pray today again that as we leave this place, help us to go and find godly mentors in our lives. Help us to make that lunch appointment, that breakfast appointment with those mentors. Help us to seek those people who are further along than us. And help us to implement these five biblical principles into our everyday lives so that not only can our children remain rooted in Christ, but we can remain rooted in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' precious and holy name. And everybody said, amen. This has been an audio recording from Crossroads Community Church. If you'd like to get in contact with us or learn more about us, you can follow us on social media at C3Lehigh or email us at info at C3Lehigh.com. We'd love to hear from you.